Well, welcome to the Situation Report, March 13th, 2023. It's Lieutenant Colonel Murray. And the financial markets. What a drama. <laughs> wow. I love the drama. It's amazing. So three banks, as everybody's probably heard by now, failed last week, Silicon Valley being the biggest. It is amazing to me, even today, it's amazing to me that there's this many people that literally do not understand the uh, the gravity of the situation. So Silvergate Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, and Signature Bank all collapsed last week. And at first, Janet Yellen said, "Yeah, we're not going to uh, we're not going to bail them out." And then over the weekend, again, she's a she's a she's a banker, or she's sorry, she's an academic, not a banker, and. Uh, Let's just say <laughs> she's a bit clueless. Now, I think the the word that Tom Luongo used was was blissfully ignorant or naive. That's a good word for it. But literally, they said on Friday they weren't going to bail out these banks, and then on yesterday they had an emergency meeting. And let me tell you how that goes. So the emergency meeting was probably with Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan. Um, BNY Mellon and Chase Bank. And they were probably all said, if you don't do this, everyone's going to collapse on Monday because everybody's going to make a run on the banks, which is what everybody did. And well, which is what everybody would have done today. Sorry. I don't know if it would actually happen or not, but the Fed stepped in yesterday and said that they were going to bail everybody out, even the non-insured depositors. But here's some interesting things. So over the weekend, Steve Bannon said, and I posted it to both Telegram and to Truth Social that, you know, he confirmed exactly what I've been saying about Elon Musk from day one. He's owned by China, lock, stock, and barrel. End of story, mic drop. And he finally put it into he put it into a bunch of different um venues, but I pulled it off of Getter. And put it into True Social and Telegram because it's sometimes it's good to get validation that you're not crazy, right? And I, I don't trust Musk, and I don't, you know. And then he comes out yesterday or Friday and says he'd be open to buying Silicon Valley Bank. So now you've got a guy and turning Twitter into a payment system. So you have you have a guy now that owns a satellite network. He wants he, he's and remember, folks, he said openly that he wants to turn Twitter into WeChat. WeChat, the Chinese use for everything, payments, conversations. And it's it's basically a front for the Chinese Communist Party intelligence apparatus to turn people off as a part of the social scoring system. So does it really surprise you that the guy wants to use Twitter and make it into WeChat? He said that openly. And he said it openly because he's owned by the Communist Party. And finally, Steve Bannon came out and said it. But here's the bigger thing. The bigger thing that's going on right now, and again, all of these bank failures, this is not coincidental. They they want to do a slow burn and get rid of everything but the big players. And I'm not just saying that. I'm saying it that way for a reason. Because they want to keep the major corporations around, which is what China's done, which is what Iran has done. And in Iran, if you're a general officer, you basically have ownership 
in a number of Iranian companies. And that's just like Egypt. That's how they keep control of the, of the government is that they give general officers ownership in companies. So they make their salary and they make money off of the company ownership. They want to do the same thing here. They do the same thing in China. Only in China, every 20 years or so, they reel in all the billionaires, take all their wealth, and throw it back into the coffers and start over again. At the same time they're doing that, they're issuing ownership to general officers again to some of these these state-run companies for the simple fact it keeps them loyal to the party, or at least in theory, it keeps them loyal to the party. The, The point that that you should be looking at right now is the close ties between social media and the government and all the government agencies and the ability of social media to influence the government, to make decisions for banning people and censoring people based off requests from these federal agencies. That's the precursor to state ownership, which is what they want to do. If you crash all the regional banks, if you crash all the smaller credit unions, if you smash, if you crash all of the, the small players in the market, like Silicon Valley Bank is legitimately a small player in the market compared to JP Morgan, Chase, Wells Fargo, et cetera. If they keep one or two or three of the top players and they can roll out the infrastructure for the digital currency, guess what? They have complete control of the financial system, which is what they want to do. However, I don't think they're going to be able to do it. For a couple of reasons. Again, people that don't have a seat at the table are fighting back against this. In addition to that, Alex Craner says it the best, and I, I posted a link um, both on True Social and in Telegram to, the, to a video he just did, which is fairly short. It's about five minutes long. But he talks about how, and I've said this before, when you build these really complex systems, it only takes one small piece of the system to bring the entire thing to its knees. When you're going to roll out a financial system, the problem with Bitcoin has always been scale. It was never built to scale across the planet. It was never built to scale for millions of transactions. It just wasn't built for that. And it wasn't architected for that. In order to pull off a digital central bank digital currency that flows across multitudes of countries seamlessly, it takes a tremendous amount of infrastructure, a tremendous amount of computing power, and most importantly, it has to operate flawlessly. Having worked in data centers, having worked in in cloud computing for the better part of you know 15 years now, I can tell you that that's a very hard proposition. It's a very hard proposition because you have to have a host of redundancy, especially for cloud computing. You have to have a a host of redundancy in order to pull off, you know, billions of transactions all at one time. Just to give you some idea of what this takes. So I built a lot of the security stack at um, a cloud service provider and they were just a, um, a cloud, you know, basically help desk app. But to service all the customers, and we had huge customers, GE, um, you know, most of the most of pharmaceuticals, you name it. We had a, we had some very very big customers. In order to 
carry off and and support just their transaction needs. We built geographically separated data centers with redundancy to where we were we were warm swapping data all day long. So we're moving petabytes of data every hour. Not terabytes, petabytes. And when you start talking about that level of data movement every single hour, you're talking about millions of transactions that you're you're replicating and duplicating. So if if you have a disk failure in one place, you don't lose all of those transactions for that specific amount of time to whenever the disk you know stops and whenever you can restore the disk, et cetera. And look, there's a lot of network technologies they use for for storage so that you don't lose a lot of data. But it happens anyway. Regardless of your best efforts, you still have data loss when you have equipment failures. It just happens. And then you have other issues where machines will get hung up. You'll have memory leaks. You'll have, there's a host of issues that preclude most of the online transactions from being completed at any given point in time. It's not a perfect system is what I'm saying. Because of that, they put in and, and spent years building redundancies, especially when you're like Amazon. If you look at Amazon's apparatus, when you when you make a purchase, right? There's millions of purchases going on all at the same time. And the moment you make a purchase, it goes into their fulfillment system, which has millions of transactions that are stacking every single hour. Now, parses them out by geographic region, by zip code, et cetera. They have a very sophisticated algorithm for how they do it. And they have a very sophisticated um, set of tools that they use for parsing that information and keeping that information current. And it's, it takes huge, huge amounts of infrastructure. That infrastructure isn't built overnight. It takes years to build that infrastructure. And even if they built that infrastructure over the course of COVID, it would still take them years of testing to perfect the system to be able to switch it on. And even then, it's going to be riddled with technical problems just because of the scale. That's why when you bank online, most of the transactions you do online, they don't happen instantaneously. A lot of them can take several days to process. Like, you ever transfer wire transfer money? That process, even if you do it online, still takes almost two days to do. Sometimes you can get it done the same day. Sometimes it takes two days. Sometimes it takes three days. It's not a zero-sum thing. So you're talking about a banking system that in still a lot of places has a lot of legacy equipment, legacy systems that are tied to the federal system, which is far from perfect in any way, shape, or form, especially at scale. And you're talking about a government system that's run by people that are paid lower than just about everybody in the market. So you're not attracting the best talent in the first place. Hopefully you're starting to see a bigger picture. There's a there's a host of systemic issues you have to overcome to be able to roll out this technology. And even if you have quantum computing, there's not enough of there's not enough endpoints that can support that computing for it to be flawless. And even if they have some magic bullet, I'm telling you. When you, when you put things into a data center, into an operational environment, anything can happen. Anything. And I've seen it all. I've seen equipment failures. The moment you put a load or stress on it, equipment fails. I've seen entire racks fail for power, air, whatever. You name it. 
And it, it sometimes it takes hours to restore that equipment. Sometimes it's minutes. Sometimes it's hours. The point is, it's not a zero-sum thing. And when you're talking about a financial system that crosses the globe, that handles billions of transactions every you know every second, that that's a pretty tall order. So even if they want to roll this out right now, it's still there's still I still don't see how they can do it. Technically, I don't see how they can pull it off and it be seamless because the other side of the coin is that they want to implement a complete grid of control and they've put the camera systems, the facial recognition and all the intelligence systems behind the scenes. And, and, I, and as I described my overseas trip to you to where I didn't even show my passport, they knew exactly who I was. I scanned my passport once and then it was facial recognition all the way through. And part of it was, I knew what was going on, but I wanted to see just how sophisticated the system is. And if you're wondering why, it's because I'm already in the system. I had a security clearance for fuck's sake. So they know everything about me and then some. They probably have my DNA for Christ's sake. Wait, they do have my DNA. It's just when you're in the military, that's just how it goes. So for me, it was less of a less of a threat to get in this to be in the system because I'm already in the system. Now, the, the bigger issue was I wanted to see how sophisticated those systems were. And the only way to do it is to really is to get right in front of it and test it. And the, so the intelligence apparatus is in place where the piece they're missing is the control grid. Not everybody agrees on the control grid. And you can thank your lucky stars for that because the fact that they can't agree on everything means that they won't agree. And the fact that they won't agree means that no matter what they do, it's going to be mired with problems because not everybody signed up for it. So even if they want to roll it out right now, it's not going to happen. Which brings me to the bank failures. So they can't cover all the banks. And these are just the first three in the dominoes that are going to fall. And there was a lot of consternation today. I got calls from just about everybody, which I thought was very interesting because I'm not a banker. I'm not a finance guy. So, you know, the... The biggest thing here is that it's going to, even if, let's say all the banks fail at once, it's still going to be a day or two before the world figures out what's going on. And the reality is Europe's going to go first before we do, because their banking system's way more brittle than ours is right now. And that said, the other side of the coin to keep in mind is that even if the system fails, it'll be two or three days before the impact is really felt across the entire country. And let's say they do implement a, a digital banking system. This is what's going to happen. You're going to have part of the population that signs up and goes along with it. Then you're going to have part of the population that doesn't. And they're going to come up with an alternative system. And when they do, they're not going to need that other system. You got to remember that all of this financial system was put in place as nothing other than a debt slavery model. It's just slavery. It's just a different form of shackles. When you sign a mortgage, it's a 30-year it's a 30-year prison sentence. You're tied to that house for 30 years and you have to make the payments every month. Sick, not sick, doesn't matter. You could be on your deathbed, they don't care, they still want their money. That's the slavery system. So 
when you get into the alternative systems, people start to realize that the, the, the system they're operating under is a construct. It's a construct of a very, very small group of people that have controlled the events on this planet for generations. And they're deathly afraid that that construct is going to be found out and fall apart. But no matter what they're doing, it's going to fall apart anyway. We've passed the, the culmination point where they can resuscitate the system with lies. Because look at, and this is something that Alex Craner talked about today, which I agree with. Look at the lies that they've spread about Russia. I mean, essentially, when the war in Ukraine started, they literally, they took Russia off of every system in the U.S. Like, go, go try and get to RT News. You can't download the app in the Apple Store. And I don't think you can even browse the website. I know I had a hard time browsing it um, a few weeks ago. No, I can't get to it. But the point is, is that it is, um, yeah, yeah, I can get to it now. That's interesting. It gave me a 404 error first and then it came through. But they basically took Russia offline in the U.S. and, and European countries. And they did it almost immediately. And I can tell you why they did that. They did that because they wanted everybody to be redirected to the narratives that were being pushed by Western media. And they wanted a blackout of what was actually happening on the ground, specifically probably around those biolabs, because they were caught completely off guard. And now, good luck trying to find accurate information about what's really going on. The Russians are lying. The Ukrainians are lying. The Americans are lying. The Europeans are lying. You don't know what the ground truth is. So no matter what you try and try and source, even Russian TV, it's still, a lot of it's just nonsense. But the, the bigger picture, though, is that they needed the blackout in order to divert your attention away from what was going on. And I can tell you that this whole Fed stepping into this banking situation is they need to divert the attention away from the fact that the ban banks are collapsing and that the, and it has nothing to do with being woke. If you go back to 2019, there was a liquidity crisis in the repo markets way back in 2019. And because there was so many issues back in 2019, that's why we got COVID because they couldn't resuscitate the markets because they were putting billions of dollars every night into the repo markets. And that's where banks lend to other banks. That market died in 2019 and never came back. Now there's a liquidity crisis in the banks. And you saw that with Wells Fargo and deposits. You saw that Silicon Valley Bank over the weekend. There's a number of systemic issues that are starting to catch up with all of these banks. Now, what that means for us on the ground, it means things are going to suck for a while. But at the end of the day, it literally means that the system's dying despite their best efforts to resuscitate it, and it needs to die. We need the old system to die completely before we move into the new system. And that is a very startling um, revelation for people to hear right now because they're like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I can't buy food. I can't do anything else. Well, here's the bigger picture. Once the flow of money stops, then the flow of goods stops. 
then logistics stops. And there's a whole host of things that go along with that. Now, I could sit here and say, I told you so, but that's not the point of the exercise. The point of this conversation is to not be afraid because the right thing's going to happen and there might be some violence along with it, but the right thing, the right thing's going to happen. And the right thing is the old system dies and we put a new system in place. Now, how long it takes from the time the system dies till people recognize it's dead and we start to take action, that's a different story. But right now, there's nothing to be afraid of. And more importantly, it's why your sphere of influence becomes so important right now because as the uncertainty mounts, people around you are going to be looking for somebody that's grounded, right? And that brings me to my uh, events on, on Saturday. So Saturday I was invited by Jim and Janet Arroyo um, up in Yavapai County to go to the Yavapai um, preparedness group and uh, Oath Keepers meeting. And I wasn't intending to speak. I was completely caught off guard when they asked me to speak. But gracious host, really, really good people. Boy, you want to talk about the model of sphere of influence? They have been dialed in for years. And get away from the name Oath Keepers. What they really are is a preparedness group, not a prepper group. They're a preparedness group. And one of the things that, that Janet said that I was uh, just dialed into was that they've encouraged neighborhood groups to stand up for the last 15 years because they knew something like this was coming. And she described almost to a T the apathy that they've seen over the years. And, you know, like she said, one week we'll have, one month we'll have 15 new members. The next month they're not there. Then three months later, we'll have 15 new members. And then the next month they're not there. People are intrigued to go, but the problem is the apathy sets in and they go back to their daily routine. People that really see that there's something on the horizon stay and learn. And I got to tell you, I went early because they had a the training sessions they do every month. And one of them, and by the way, I took Troop with me and Troop was uh, talking comms and uh, he's, he's commo and he's a lot of things, but he, he does water. He does commo. He does food. He's, he's dialed in. Right. And it's because he worked so many years with the red cross. So the guys he's, he understands emergency response. He's dialed into it, right? So he understands preparedness. That's part of the reason why I wanted him to go because he can give me, he can sniff out, um, you know, bullshit when it comes to, you know, preparedness quicker than anybody else I know. You know, some of my other admins, I have admins that were law enforcement. I have admins that are business owners. I have admins that are, you know, vice presidents. That, that are dialed into specific parts of our uh, our culture, right? And they, I can ask them questions and they literally will call bullshit like right now. And I've got a, a group of folks that are highly technical, that are way more technical than I am, that can dig into things, which is, uh, you know, way deeper than my my technical depth after all these years of being at the executive level. And I can see a lot of things that people don't see. So I took them along and they're the real deal. They do, they were doing radiological training, right? So on radiation poison, what do you do? And it brought back a lot of memories from the nuke days and the space days 
of, you know, when you start talking about nuclear radiation, it's a whole different ballgame, right? Because you're talking about literally a different kind of decontamination, right? Because you talk about radiation sickness, and then you talk about decontamination and why decontamination is so important, which is one of the topics I covered with uh, uh, Kristen Megan and uh, Tammy Clark. They're, they're environmental um, hygienists, which is they're basically occupational safety and health um, consultants, and they have deep knowledge in what happened in East Palestine. They talk about decontamination at a cursory level, but this talked about decontamination, what kind of soap to use, how to use the soap, how to have different areas this you step through as you as you decontaminate somebody, how long to wait after initial exposure, the types of radiation, the types of exposure that comes along with the nuclear weapon. I mean, stuff I haven't heard in 30 years. And it's pretty interesting. And the types of exposure and how exposure happens, it was very thorough training. And uh, my feedback to him was, hey, put this into a pocket guide that you can give to everybody because just having slides is one thing. But if this is in a guide, this would be useful information for people to carry along with them. So I really appreciate the opportunity to go up there and make human connections. A lot of really, really good people up there. Um, they, they literally... Um, I had a number of people come up to me afterwards and want me to go speak to their small groups, which I'll probably do um, as part of, you know, increasing my sphere of influence and, and increasing my, my line of sight. It's interesting what you find when you talk to so many different people. But the, the point is, is that that human connection, the reason why I keep talking about it is because events like that, the human connections that you make out of that are vastly more valuable than any amount of money or any amount of goods and service that you can buy. Because these are people that have been doing, you know, preparedness work for years. They know the stuff that's important and the things that aren't. And it was very, very um, enlightening to see all of these people um, so squared away. It was, it was very enlightening. So my point of that is there's a lot of people that are preparing quietly and, you know, they're just doing it as part of their daily ribbon. And you'd never know it. And there's some very, very smart people that are in that group. So imagine that across the country and assume that that's happening in every state. And the, there's your there's your patriot movement. And there's a variety of different things. And get away from the term militia, because that's a bullshit term anyway. These are small groups of patriots that are working in different ways to prepare for whatever lays ahead. The, the term militia was a bullshit term that was used after Timothy McVeigh blew up the, the federal building in Oklahoma City. It was a planned event. It was a bunch of horse shit. All of it was, wait, let me say it, it was bullshit. And it was designed so that it would distract, distract people away from what was going on in Washington, D.C. and the scandals there. And at the same time, kill the militia movements because back then they were gaining momentum. And there's a good reason why they were gaining momentum. And that was just after the information of Bill Clinton selling missile technology to the Chinese. Go figure. This is back in the 90s, folks. So there's a lot of things that have happened that literally have precipitated these small groups to be to, um, to reemerge 
But the one thing that has caused them to reemerge, and this group's been around for 15 years, it's not a new group. The one thing that's caused these groups to reemerge is the fact that they see something wrong with the country and they don't know where to go to organize. And that's what that's what the elite and that's what the apparatus in DC and the federal and all these Maoists, they do not want. They do not want people actively organizing because they can manipulate you when you when they can make you feel alone and they can make you feel isolated and they can make you feel like nobody else is in the same boat. That's how they manipulate you. And Alex Kerner talks a little bit about this today when he was talking about the fact that they've created this machine to dehumanize Russia and Russians and especially Putin since the start of the war. And it hasn't worked and it hasn't worked because people are fatigued with war here. They're tired of the narrative. They don't trust the system. They don't trust anybody in the apparatus. They don't even trust any of the government agencies anymore. And that's because they simply have lied too much and the same lies don't work anymore. That's why this whole thing is starting to fall apart. Because the one thing they've always literally stood on was public opinion. They've been able to manipulate public opinion forever and ever through mainstream TV because they owned it. And now they don't have the same ownership and they don't have the same ability to manipulate the public like they used to. Look at the Trump phenomenon. They have tried desperately since 2015 to rip that guy apart and rip apart his entire movement. The only thing it's done is made... His staunch supporters, ardent supporters, and religious believers. And those people who were on the fringe were convinced to stay in the Trump camp because of the fact that it, this orange man bad narrative has been propagated throughout our entire culture. And the, the, believe it or not, the one person who's done the most damage to Trump is Trump. It's not the media. The more the media goes after him, the more supporters are around him and the more people stay around him. Because it's the reverse psychology of if they're attacking this guy this hard, it means he's over target. Whether or not he's real or legitimate doesn't matter. The point is, is that when you when you start to use the counterintelligence or the counter psyop piece of it, people latch into it and dig their heels into it. That's the that's going to be the downfall of the elite. Their arrogance is always their undoing. And because of that, we're going to witness a culmination point that's going to happen rapidly and people are going to be caught by surprise. This whole banking thing doesn't scare me. So I figure, fuck it. You know, we knew it was coming. How they do it, when they do it, doesn't matter. It's going to happen anyway, right? And one of my friends coming today goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm buying a truck. <laughs> He's like, what? Why are you buying a truck? Banks are failing. They go, that's why I buy a truck because banks are failing. Why not? Full send, baby. Go all in. I mean, they're going to take it away anyway, so fuck it. Might as well get something to drive that I need right now. So, you know, because ammo's heavy. I can't carry all that shit. It's just how it goes. The point I try to make it a bit facetiously is that at the end of the day, there's nothing to be afraid of. Because the, here's what I have faith in. So somebody asked me the other day, you know, what is it keeps you in the fight, right? And and it, it's always the same thing, right? I love my country. It's love of my country and fellow Americans that keeps me in the fight, right? But that's ultimately 
is the other part of the argument is that when they when they want to institute a control grid they're making assumptions about the way the public's going to react and the assumption is is that they can create the same kind of environment that the nazis created prior to world war ii where neighbor was pitted against neighbor and that control system just isn't working number one People don't want to live in that kind of environment. Most people in this country, and across the planet for that matter, they just want to be left alone. They want to live their life. They want to be able to enjoy their life. They want to enjoy their friends and family. And they don't want a bunch of distractions and a bunch of drama and a bunch of noise. The byproduct of social media is not just the isolation of individuals across our society. It's the isolation of ideas and the isolation of your socialization. And what I mean by that is over the last 20 years since social media has been around, people have gotten more and more removed from each other. And a byproduct of that is they don't want to be the cop. They don't want to play the beat cop and report their neighbors. Yeah, you've got the old entitled liberal retards and window lickers that want to report their neighbors and call the police because they're not wearing masks. But that generation is old and they're going to die off soon. And most of them are vaccinated, so they're going to die anyway. But the point is that most average Americans, most average citizens in any country in this world, they don't want to play the beat cop and report their neighbors. They just don't. And the system they want to put in place demands and rewards people to do that. People don't want to do that. It's a byproduct of the isolationist side of social media. It's it's the psyop they played that they didn't realize they were playing. And then a funny thing's going to happen once all the systems of control break down. People are going to start gravitating in groups because that's what humans do. And they're going to realize that technology is not as important as they made it out to be. One of the other pieces that they've used to install this control system is the, the dependence and addiction to technology. When you break away from the, the control systems and the addictiveness of technology, you realize two things. One, you're not as agitated. Two, you're not as paranoid. And three, and this is the most important piece, you don't need it. You literally don't need it. The initial withdrawals you go through, which is why you're checking your screen every day, is because they want to suck you into something that's going to keep you interacting with the phone so they can keep you off balance. Once you step away from that control system and leave it behind and realize there's nothing there that's going to do anything for you other than draw a missile to you because it's tied to GPS, once you look at it that way, you're like, fuck, just drop the phone, walk away. No amount of pictures. There's no amount of there's no amount of videos. There's no amount of sound bites that are ever going to give you the fulfillment or the satisfaction of a human connection. It's just, it's human nature. We're physical beings. We are social beings and we're emotional beings. When you take away all the stimulus and the technology that drives a lot of the anger and the frustration across the planet, you will see that all of that is related to technology and it's, it's built by psychopaths, every bit of it. And the psychopaths want us to act like them. And a normal, rational person doesn't act like that. They don't even have, it's not in their DNA 
to act like that. They're not vindictive. They're not petty. They're not, they're not self-serving. They're not narcissistic. Yeah, there's narcissistic people, but even narcissistic people realize the value of human connections. And when you just when you disconnect technology from that, that literally drives a wedge in their entire control system, which is why it's going to fail. You can't do complex operations and expect people to adopt something that's that costs money more, costs more money than when it doesn't cost money. And a human connection is free. You just have to do the work, the sweat equity, to, to make the relationship work. That's all there is to it. And that's why the system's going to fail. That's why I'm not scared. Because if I look back at any time in our history where there was a crisis, what is the one thing that people always do? They help one another. That is the fundamental basis of who we are as a country. Look, if you look back, and I'm going to go back all the way to the 80s and 90s, we had nonprofits that were built, deployed, and managed to help people with major catastrophic storms, major environmental issues. And they did yeoman's work, raising money and helping people. And there were several organizations, you know, until dipshits like George Soros started creating nonprofits and NGOs to go, you know, start color revolutions and, and bastardize the whole thing. There literally used to be a number of nonprofits that all they did was help people. And I know this because my mother started a nonprofit that, you know, it helps kids with their dis, um, their um, what do they call it? They're disabled at birth. They have learning disabilities at birth, and this organization was designed to interdict early in a child's development and help correct some of those learning disabilities. And the place is called Wonderland. And when she started, there was like four or five women that literally did this because one of the gals had a kid with a learning disability and there was no, there was no safety nets. So they created one and 30 years later, it has, you know, 30 or 40 um, different um, counselors that work with small children and families and gets them on the right path and gets them into the right education system. And these kids come out 15 years later and they're normal kids. And that's how most of the um, nonprofits used to be. The NGOs used to be there to help people. They haven't been corrupted and turned into these corrupt, evil, weaponized organizations that we see now. And that's, that's what we'll see again as more and more people band together. That's what they're deathly afraid of. They're not afraid of us picking up arms. They're afraid of us uniting under a common banner. That's why I keep saying unity is the hill we die on. That, is the, that literally is the hill we die on. So all this financial stuff, all the, the, the bank collapse, every bit of that shit, it's just noise to distract from something else. It's going to happen anyway. They can't stave it off. The best thing you can do right now is pull some money out of the bank, have some money on hand so you can buy things for a few days until people figure out the currency is worthless, and then adapt, adjust, 
and move forward. Just live your life. There's nothing to be scared of. You know, when it's, it's springtime, start thinking about a garden, get a garden planted, start getting your, your affairs in order. That's what you should be doing right now. Start preparing for the worst. If you haven't already done it, if you already prepared for the worst, start replacing the stuff that you've consumed and used. 80% ready, 100% of the time. That's where you want to be. That's what you want to be focused on right now. Put the technology down. Unless you're making a human connection with it, just leave it behind you. It's not important. And that's that's literally the most important thing you can be doing right now. And on that note, I'm going to play uh, another song out of the, uh, I'll just say, we'll call it the uh, Old Glory catalog. This is by Brian Martin. It's called Divided States. I think it's very appropriate for where we are today. And and I've heard some of his catalog, but not all of his catalog. But uh, yeah, I think this... Uh, this will give you a good flavor for where we are today. But bear in mind, you're not alone. You have nothing to be scared of. There's millions of patriots that are right there with you. I met a bunch of them this weekend. And I'm telling you, I said to them the same thing I'm going to say to you. Unity is the hill we die on. Cross the aisle. Find common ground. That's the best thing you can do. God bless. One team, one fight. And they ain't looking to be seen The media's eating it all up And they instigate the whole damn thing You either red or blue Black or white And there ain't no in between But the tickets on sale To watch it all go to hell Right there on your TV screen Tell me what happened You want peace and love This is still one nation under God, and this is still his land. There's just one too many agendas, and what I don't understand is there's blood in our streets and blood overseas, and it's all on our hands. Tell me what happened, one peace and love. They got us all fighting now, and we take it.